Well, Josiah's era was not, not so unlike our own, was it? The writing was on the wall for Judah. He was living in the last days, we might say, the last days of the kingdom of Judah, and he knew it. He knew it by prophecy. God's great wrath was coming on his people for their disobedience, but that didn't make Josiah give up on his people. And that's what we hope to look at over the next couple of days. But just pause and consider, brothers and sisters, because we know the whole story, we know how events unfold. Have you ever considered the question, when the, the man of God came from Judah, back in 1 Kings 13 that we looked at in our first study on Sunday, and when he said that Josiah would be born and reverse all of Jeroboam's evil and burn the bones of his false priests on the altar, what really was the point? What was the point of this Josiah coming on the scene to do that? Because when that boy eventually came, it was already too late for the nation. And God decreed that they would still be going off into captivity despite his efforts. So what good was there in Josiah coming onto the scene to do this great work if it was, in fact, too little, too late? Was it just to make a statement so that God could prove that, well, here's Josiah, just like I said. See, I know the future. No, it was so much more than that, wasn't it, brothers and sisters? God had a purpose with Josiah, and it wasn't to save the whole nation. To be sure, God is not willing that any should perish. But he knew that the whole nation was beyond saving, just like he knew that Noah's generation was beyond saving, despite the preaching of Noah. Just like he knew that Sodom was beyond saving, despite Lot's best efforts and Abraham's earnest pleas, just like he knew that most of the world was beyond saving brothers and sisters, despite the fact that he gave his only son for them. From the beginning of time, it's never been the masses that God could save because the flesh is at war with the spirit and most will choose the way of the flesh. What God knew and what Josiah knew was that despite what was inevitably coming, not everyone would choose that way. That there would be a few here and there, the remnants as we refer to them, that would be responsive to Josiah's efforts and would be spared from the wrath to come. So he threw his whole life, as it were. That's, that's the emphasis of the record. All the rest of what we read about Josiah is that he's going to throw everything he has into saving as many of his people as he could because he knew that some would respond. And so he wastes no time. You remember we said yesterday that it was in the 18th year of his reign that he began cleansing the temple. And it's actually in the 18th year of his reign that everything else in the record takes place until his death. He finds the book of the law. He makes the people stand to a covenant. He redoubles the effort to purge the land again, as Brother Joe read for us. He organizes the greatest feast of Passover in the history of the nation. All these things that he gets to work and does right away in response to what Huldah has said to him. So that if by any means, to lift a phrase from Paul's writings, if by any means he might save some. But from a natural perspective, the odds are all stacked against him. 
In the face of the prophetic word that Huldah has just told him, he's up against a nation who saw Israel's idolatry and the result of that idolatry and still wanted it anyway. They wanted the same idolatry. He's up against the resistance of the people and the conspiracies that Jeremiah talks about in his prophecy in Jeremiah 11. He's up against people who just didn't care about the truth and the word of God anymore, as Jeremiah says in chapter 5. He's up against people who are saying, well, Yahweh's not going to do anything anyway, regardless of what they do. And so what do they do? Zephaniah chapter 3 says that they woke up early in the day and sinned with eagerness, is how one version puts it. The false prophets that we read about in the book of Jeremiah, they, they were clever, brothers and sisters. They had what we might call today a survival plan, and it was well thought out. They figured, well, we have the temple. We have the priests in our pocket. We can influence them to do and to say whatever we tell them to, and we have everything we need here. And you know what? If we integrate a little bit with the nations, and be a little bit more tolerant of their gods, it will make them more tolerant of us. It will make them more receptive to us. And we'll be able to live peaceable lives right here in Jerusalem. Oh, isn't, doesn't that sound so familiar, brothers and sisters? It sounds good on the surface, but that's what happens when we ignore the simple teaching of the word for long enough. And in the midst of all of these challenges, Josiah understood that even though he couldn't save the nation as a whole, it's about saving individuals. And he knew that there were individuals in every part of the nation, even as far north as the northern extremities of Israel, that would make the choice to follow Yahweh. So he didn't just keep his zeal to himself and focus on his own household. What did he do? Right after he heard Huldah's message about coming destruction and how he would be spared, he wanted to share the word that he had heard. We've read from 2 Kings 23 because we're going to spend most of our time there in this class, but just come back for a moment, or come forward rather, to the Chronicles account in 2 Chronicles 34 that we've been considering up to this point. Because Chronicles tells us that immediately after he hears the prophecy from Huldah, he gathers all the elders of Judah and Israel. Second Chronicles 34, verse 29. The king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, rather, I think I said Israel, of Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 30, and the king went up into the house of Yahweh and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small. He gathers everyone together and says, everyone needs to hear the words that I've just heard from the law of Yahweh. Everyone, all the people, from the great even to the small, from the oldest to the youngest, from the tallest to the shortest, from the learned to the young kids who will sit here and listen to the readings and have probably no idea what they're talking about. But we're going to get them all together because that's the value of God's word, and everyone needs to hear it. And this time it's not Shaphan who's going to read. This time it's Josiah himself, because this is a man who is involved with his people. He's right there in the mix with them, because 
because that's what good leadership does. A spiritual leader knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way, is how one brother put it. That's what Josiah did. He knew the way, he went the way, and he showed the way in his actions. He heard what he needed to do, regardless of how unusual or unpopular it was. He went and did it, and he called others to do the same. And I think he got that from what he read in Deuteronomy, because that's the repeated message of the book of the covenant, of the law of Yahweh that he's just had read to him by Shaphan. That's what Deuteronomy says over and over again. Get the people together, make them hear my words that they may learn to fear me and then teach it to their children in Deuteronomy 4. Observe in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, observe and hear all the words and then get your children and do it with your children as well. Chapter 31, get the people together so that they may hear and that they may learn and fear Yahweh your God and observe to do and that their children might do it as well. Chapter 32, set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command to your children to observe to do. That's the message over and over and over in Deuteronomy. Hear the word, do the word, teach others to do the word. Pass it on to the children. Pass it on to the grandchildren from generation to generation. Brothers and sisters, this man is on fire for God. He's on fire for the truth. And he wasn't afraid to say it and to show it. He wasn't embarrassed to gather people around for an over two-hour reading of this book. He didn't try to give them the cliff notes or the abridged version or the highlights that he thought were important. Did you notice it says there in the second half of verse 30, he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of Yahweh. That's the kind of contagious zeal for God's principles that we need to have, isn't it? And not to be embarrassed to show in front of brothers and sisters and, and children. It's not easy. It, it can look extreme at times, particularly extreme in comparison to the, to the way the world practices religion. But, but we can't just compare ourselves to the world and say, well, I'm, I'm more extreme. You know, I'm more zealous than the world or than the churches, so I must be good at no. We have to have the same contagious zeal that we see the holy men of old, the women of faith. Ah, but nobody will listen. People, people will think I'm a bit crazy if I go to that extreme. Imagine the result if Josiah had kept his zeal to himself, because he could have. He could have. God had already acknowledged his own personal response and told him that he would be spared from the coming judgment. Josiah could have said, I'm all set and no one else is gonna listen anyway. Brothers and sisters, we are in the exact same position. We have the truth. We can be content to keep it to ourselves. Our course is set and our reward is sure if we remain faithful to the end. But Josiah didn't leave it at that. He went about to share his zeal and to save as many people as he could. He makes a personal covenant to walk in God's ways, verse 31, with all his heart. We're going to look more at this on Friday, God willing, in our last study, this idea of all the heart. And then he goes about to get the people to stand to a covenant. And perhaps this is one of those 
those parts that in our mind we remember best about the story of Josiah, the fact that he, he causes the people to stand to a covenant. So we'll just talk about this for a couple minutes um, later on and also a little bit more later this week. But that word heart, you know where that comes up perhaps more than any other place in scripture? Deuteronomy. 47 times in Deuteronomy, the book that Josiah has just heard all the words of. Because we know, don't we, that the message consistently of Deuteronomy is it's not just about doing the right thing. It's about doing the right thing for the right reason. It's about our heart being in what our hands are doing and our mouth is saying. And sadly, that wasn't the case for most of Judah. Jeremiah 3 tells us that many of the people were not genuine in their covenant. And their covenant didn't outlive Josiah. It was a sham, a lie, as the word means. Because, brothers and sisters, you can't transfer faith from one generation to the next like it's a file on a thumb drive. I can't airdrop faith to my children as much as I sometimes wish I could. <laughs> it has to be a personal choice. We'll see this in Josiah's own household, tragically, but also in Judah as a whole. You can make someone agree to a covenant, but you can't force them to go and live in the right way. There is, there is a great difference between forcing compliance and inspiring obedience. There was a brother who used to say to me, you can't force people to do the right thing. And to a large degree, that's true. Sure, it might look like you can, but, but in reality, you can't. We can force children to abide by the rules that we set. And it might look like they're, they're doing the right thing, but if their heart is not in it, then they're really just doing it because they've been forced to, and it will be short-lived. We were talking to Brother Chris and Sister Martha about this yesterday, that there are things that there are boundaries we need to establish in the home. There are things like filters on the internet that comes into our home that, that we have to have. And in a sense, what we're doing is forcing compliance. You, you cannot access certain things on the internet in our house. But the flesh is wily and they'll find a way to access it if they want to. They'll get a device that's not filtered. They'll find a friend who has a device that's not filtered. How much more powerful is it if as a family we talk about why we have the boundaries that we do. If we explain why we're requiring compliance so that the principles stick, so that there is buy-in to those principles, so that they're inspired by being shown the why of the truth and of discipleship. And then we leave them to choose to do the right thing because they want to, because they know it's right. And then they stumble and realize, well, I, I tried to go a different way and I realized that that wasn't the right way. That is so much more meaningful and so much more long lasting and powerful. But continuing in these last few verses in 2 Chronicles 34, we wanna notice a word that comes up several times in this context, and perhaps you have it colored already. We, we said that Josiah gathered together all the people that he could to join him in making this covenant. And it says in verse 32, that he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. Now, if you have a margin, it might perhaps say, 
that word present means found. And in fact, it's the same word that we saw earlier in the chapter when Hilkiah said, I have found the book of the law. And that word actually comes up over and over and over again in this context. It starts with the repeated emphasis on what had been found in the temple. And then it switches to the fact that something else has been found. It's the people. The people have been found in the process of all of this. It's, it's really beautiful, sort of the, the turn of phrase, as it were. Because just as the book of the law had been found there, but it was in fact there all along, it just needed the effort to clean the temple for it to be found. Now we have the roles reversed, and it's the people that are found by these efforts that Josiah is making. There's a really beautiful expression, perhaps it's already come to your mind, that Paul uses in Philippians 3, where he's, he talks about giving everything up, counting it all as rubbish, in order to gain Christ and to be found in him. That's our position, isn't it, brothers and sisters? We sometimes talk about finding religion or finding God, or, or when did you find God? You hear people talking in those terms. And it's true that we will find God if we seek for him. But the reality is that in the first instance, we didn't find God. God found us. Just like he says of David, I have found me a man after my own heart. Just like the Lord went and found the lost sheep of the house of Israel because he was looking for them. But there's also a little play on the English word. This idea of being present. The people were present that we want to just consider for just a moment. We mentioned a few minutes ago that although they were physically present that day, they were not actually mentally present in the covenant that they stood to. They were there in bodily form, but their heart wasn't there like Josiah's was, or at least for some of the people. And this has application on so many levels, doesn't it? These people had mastered the art of disguise, of feigning interest, to use the language of Jeremiah 3. They were great at putting on the show of outward service, of wearing the mask because it looked good and it was the right thing to do, or because others around them were doing it, or because they were afraid of the results if they didn't do it. But Jeremiah tells us it was a pretense. It was for show. In the words of Matthew 15, they honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from him. Now, we don't need to spend a lot of time, brothers and sisters, in reflecting on how we we have the same risk for ourselves. But to take it a step further from a different angle, it's not hard to take this principle and apply it in other areas of life where we can be present, but not actually present. You've experienced this, where you can be standing in front of someone and yet your mind is miles away from that person where a child can be talking to us, but we're so distracted by something else and totally oblivious to what they're actually asking us about. I'm guilty of this, and perhaps you are as well. It's a good reminder, brothers and sisters, that when we're present, let's be present. Whether it's with each other, with the children here this week, with our children at home, with our grandchildren, 
with our parents. Let's be real and genuine in our relationships and our interests and our concern for each other. Because we can all tell, you can tell when you're having a conversation with me and Tigo is happening. Have you heard of Tigo? The eyes glazed over. You know that look when someone is looking straight at your face and yet they're not even looking at your face, right? We're, we, and we all do it from time to time. Let's be present brothers and sisters. Let's be real and genuine in, in our discussions and in our conversations with one another. Now, after all this time we've spent primarily in Chronicles, let's come back to Kings that Brother Joe read for us. Because this is where the Kings account gives a lot more detail about what Josiah did next after he caused the people to stand to a covenant. Now bear in mind again, that this is all in response to what Josiah heard from Huldah. This is all happening immediately on the heels of, okay, we finished, the record doesn't say they finished, but let's assume they finished this, this big ecclesial project to, to restore and repair the temple. What now? What's gonna happen next? Well, he sets about, to be more thorough in things that he's already done. He, he's going to purge idolatry from the nation again. But, but wait a minute. Where did these idols come from? Josiah had purged the land back in the 12th year of his reign, six years ago. And when Brother Joe read 2 Kings 23, it almost sounds like that purge never even happened. Verse 4 down to verse 20 is this long list of what Josiah did, and he did this in this place. Next verse, and he did this to these. Next verse, and he did this in this place. And on and on, he's going all up and down Judah and Israel again to purge the land again. Because often removing these types of idols and influences is something that has to occur more than once, isn't it? Sometimes it has to be done over and over again because Josiah had cleansed the land once and then things start to creep back in, or perhaps they were missed the first time, or perhaps there were things that we weren't sensitive to the first time. We thought Josiah was thorough in his first purge. When you read through this section, it's like this is a man on a mission and he won't stop until the job is totally done. He's trying desperately to stamp out idolatry from the nation so that he can get, it, get rid of it out of the lives of his sons. So they'll never turn back to this. Did you notice how committed he is to totally and completely destroying idolatry from the nation? It doesn't just say that he removed idols. Over and over and over again, it tells us that he's burning, verse 4. He's burning, verse 6, and stamping it small. He's breaking down. He's defiling He's breaking down, defiling, burning, beating down to dust, defiling, breaking in pieces, cutting down, filling the void with the bones of men, breaking down, burning, stamping small to powder, burning. This is serious effort, brothers and sisters. This is not half-hearted dedication. Josiah saw that Yahweh's anger was burning against the idolatry of the people. In verse 13 and verse 17. And there's Josiah burning, burning, burning the idols over and over again. It's as though he's made, he's taken hold of his message 
and said, Yahweh's anger is kindled against the people and against the idolatry. I'm going to make that my own spirit. God's will, my will. God's passion, my passion. What God burns for, I'm going to burn for. This is chemical and physical change. Things that cannot be undone or glued back together. Some of these things, as we said a couple of days ago, some of these things have been around for hundreds of years. They've survived previous purges because they were rebuilt or they had never been removed. And Josiah has to unwind the idolatry of previous generations before him. The altars that Ahaz made were there. The altars Manasseh had made in the temple court were still there. The high places all the way back from Solomon are still there. And the altar and the high places made by Jeroboam, the arch nemesis, are still there. But wait a minute. That altar had been rent in 1 Kings 13. And ashes had poured out of it. Where did it come from? Evidently, it's been rebuilt. Because isn't that the incessant nature of our flesh? Somebody had rebuilt it. No doubt, perhaps, Jeroboam. All of this is such a powerful lesson, isn't it, about the dangers of idolatry and the insidious nature of it. And the way it creeps in or back in slowly and methodically, the wiles of our nature. We have to be so careful that just because wood and stone idols are no longer set up on our mantles at home, and high places don't exist in our cities, and priests no longer pass their children through the fire to Molech, and people don't offer their chariot horses or their fast cars to the sun god, that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that idolatry is a thing of the past. As one brother said, to conclude this would be to miss one of the strongest warnings from the most recurring problem in Israel's history. The attitude of mind that is at the heart of idolatry is alive in all of us, isn't it? It's basic to our human nature. It might look different from one situation to another, but at its core, idolatry is inherent in all of us. For example, Paul talks in Colossians 3 about idolatry. And he says that covetousness is as idolatry. And when we understand how that's the case, we understand one of the components that is actually behind idolatry. When you think of covetousness, it really is a, a greedy desire for something external to us that we don't have, whether that's money or status, some other external thing, someone else's position, and something that pushes aside our thoughts of God's principles. It so often involves something that man has constructed, that man values, that man has created, and it stands in the way of being wholeheartedly focused on God. So perhaps one form of idolatry is greedily desiring something that is external to us. And perhaps this is the one that we, we tend to think of the most, that an idol is a thing, it's a tangible thing that we can aspire to have because it would make us look good or feel good or, or solve some serious problem or deficiency that I have in my life. It will make everything better. And so we convince ourselves of. 
But Samuel also says to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, you'll remember these words. He says, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. So stubbornness is in some way related to idolatry because when Saul refused to offer complete obedience to God and insist that his own way was right, he was making his own desires and his own interests of higher importance than God. In short, we might say self had become Saul's idol. But yet again, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10. Let's just go there. We went here briefly with Brother Kitson, for those of you that were in Brother Kitson's session yesterday, because Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 10, and he reminds them not to be idolaters as some of the, the children of Israel were. As it is written, he says in verse 7, neither be idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. And then he quotes quite an unusual place from Exodus chapter 32. Not the part of Exodus 32 that you and I might have quoted, but Paul, under inspiration, quotes exactly what God wants us to notice. He doesn't quote verse 1 of Exodus 32. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, up, make us gods which shall go before us. He doesn't quote verse 4. These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. He likens their behavior in eating and drinking and playing as being a major element of their idolatry. And as Brother Kitson pointed out yesterday, there, there are immoral behaviors bound up in these phrases when you look deeper into them. Because, brothers and sisters, if that's what life is consumed with, with going to work so that we can eat what we want, to drink what we want, have the toys that we want to play with, satisfy our own natural desires, then even those, those necessary things, to some extent, of daily life can become our own idolatry. Because when did the people do that in Exodus 32? As we looked at with Brother Kitson yesterday, verse 4 said that the idol was finished. Verse 5 says that Aaron built an altar before it, and he made a proclamation. Do you remember what the proclamation was? We won't go back and look at it. He says, as soon as the idol comes out of the fire, comes out of the, walks out of the fire, as Brother Kitson said, Aaron says, let's not forget, let's not forget that tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. And so the people rose up on the morrow, on the day that Aaron had reminded the people, it's a feast day to Yahweh. And let's mix truth and error. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and sat down to eat and to drink and to rose up to play. That's the context. And that's the part of Exodus 32 that the Spirit wants us to notice. That there is so much more going on here than just people bowing down to an idol. They, they are mixing religion and pleasure, mixing truth and error. So idolatry is so much more than just bowing down to a physical thing or, or saying out loud that this is my God that has delivered me from sin. We know this, brothers and sisters, so we won't spend as much time on this as, as we might with the young people, perhaps. But anything can become an idol for us. Money can become my idol, if that's where my confidence lies. 
An athlete can become my idol. If my goal in life is to be as good at them, as good as them at whatever sport I'm interested in, and I spend so much time on that instead of my spiritual development. A movie star can become my idol. My, my phone, my phone can become my idol. If I'm more interested in that than the Bible class that I'm sitting in or the conversation I'm having with you. Isn't that such a risk that we all run with, with having this handy little device in our pocket? My job becomes my idol. When I, when I let it become more important than being present at ecclesial events on a regular basis. My status can become my idol, my reputation, my computer, games, sports, books, whatever I do with my free time. My house can become my idol because all those projects need to get done. <laughs> they need to. Like, they need to get done more than I need to be at the Bible class. My bookshelf can become my idol. It's not my, I'll be honest, my bookshelf is not my idol. <laughs> but it could be for some. Maybe it is for you. My fridge can become my idol. My car, my mirror, a friend in the world can become my idol. Myself can become my idol. You, you can become my idol. Anything can become an idol for us. Even if for a moment, it's more important to me than God is. What are your idols, brothers and sisters? What have we allowed ourselves to become accidentally or by choice enslaved to? More than slaves to God, even if only on occasion or for brief periods. Back in 2 Kings that Brother Joe read for us, I wonder if it's easy to, to read verses like verse 13 and think, well, we don't have the abominations of the Moabites or the abominations of the Zidonians or the abominations of the Ammonites that Josiah had to get rid of. But what are the abominations of the Canadians? The abominations of the Americans and the Kiwis and the Brits? What are the abominations of the lands that we live in, brothers and sisters? Previous generations had to make intentional efforts to remove idols from their homes. It's almost, um, it almost makes you smile in, in a fleshly way when you, you find it in the writings of brethren hundreds, hundreds, sorry, over a hundred years ago. And the things that they talk about needing to, you know, to push out of the ecclesia. And yet sometimes I step back and go, wow, I have let so much more than that into my house. But, but brethren have struggled with this Time immemorial. Back to Josiah and way beyond that. It's worth reflecting on for a moment. Then the words of the hymn that we, we opened with this morning. To make sure that we are worldly aims forsaken. The glory, the fame, the power. And, and we might add so many other things to that list. But the verse in the hymn would no longer rhyme. and It would get too long. But to make God our only portion our shield, and our tower. Josiah was serious about getting rid of idols. Nothing gets to stay this time. Everything and everyone associated with it is going. From the northern tip of Judah in Geba to the southern extreme in Beersheba, everything is going. 
the people who promoted the idols, the priests who were devoted to the idols, the animals that were dedicated to them. He didn't just think about it. He didn't just acknowledge that, hey, we should really go home and do something about this. He went home and he took action. He did it. And did you notice in verse 8, the record was careful to tell us that he's breaking down high places at the entering of the gate, which were on a man's left hand as you enter. And then I wonder, I wonder if the reason the record is so careful to tell us what it does in verse 13, when it says, there's also high places which were before Jerusalem on the right hand of the Mount of Olives, which is now known not by the Mount of Olives, but the Mount of Corruption, is because it's like you're coming to Jerusalem to worship, and at any turn, you have options on the left, you have options on the right, it's everywhere. And isn't that such a beautiful contrast to how we were introduced to Josiah, and we didn't read this earlier in the week, back in 2 Kings 22, verse 2, that this is a man who will not turn to the right hand or to the left, because he was going to reign over Judah at a time when options were everywhere, on both sides. He's going to turn neither to the right or to the left in eliminating these options so that his people will do the same. What are we prepared to do with the idols, brothers and sisters, that need action in our lives? Maybe it's time for an idol beatdown event in our home. Maybe it's time to be honest, to, to have a real conversation with our young people. Maybe it's time to be prepared if we go home from Bible school this week and, and a, a child or a grandchild says to us, Hey, why do we have this in the house? Or why do we do this as a family? Because as parents, it starts with us. Brother Roger Lewis said to Sister Hardessa and I several years ago, something that has always stuck with us. He said, whatever your kids see you do or not do, they will perceive as completely normal in the truth. Isn't that so true? Sometimes idolatry disguises itself as something that doesn't look like idolatry. Maybe even something that looks good or wholesome. And as a family, we get caught up in it together without even realizing it. That was what happened in Josiah's day. Jeremiah says in chapter 7 that there, it had gotten to the point where families are worshiping the queen of heaven together. This is a family activity. They don't even realize it, says Jeremiah, but they're bringing shame upon themselves. And we can look at that and say, how can you get to that point? And yet we know by experience, don't we, brothers and sisters, that we get to that point. Idols have a way of creeping in. And sometimes they change over time. Sometimes as we advance in years, we become more spiritually sensitized to things and realize that something is an idol for me that I hadn't realized it was before. When you look at the history of altars and high places throughout the kings, it seems that perhaps the reason that the altars that Ahaz built and the altars Manasseh had built and the high places of Solomon, the reason they'd stuck around for so long is because on the one hand, they look fine on the surface, even useful perhaps. They can be used for the right things. They can be used for worshiping God. They can be used for the CYC. That's what often happened during the period of the kings. 
But that's not what God wanted to happen, was it? He didn't want the high places. He wanted one place. As Brother Kitson said yesterday, it's, it's the spirit of Jeroboam that says, who needs to go to Jerusalem anymore? We have found an easier, more convenient, more appealing, cheaper, more affordable, so I have more funds for other ecclesial projects way to worship God. What was Josiah's solution? To get rid of it once and for all. Each of us has different idols, brothers and sisters, and some idols need different treatment than others. But let's be careful that we don't allow ourselves to put up a wall and think that what we have now is all okay. Or that when our young person comes to us and says that they have an idol, that, that we're honest and we're prepared to get rid of it, even if it's a great sacrifice or great cost to ourself, don't worry about the money that we wasted on the idol, just get rid of it like Josiah did. And sometimes it needs these periodic repurges like he did as well. But leaving idolatry behind, let's come to the end of this section just in our last couple of minutes. Because amidst all of this burst of activity in every verse from verse 4 to 15, it's like Josiah is going from one place to the next, to the next, to the next, working at 100%, burning, smashing, breaking down, burning, smashing, breaking down. And then he comes to this place of great significance and the pace of the record changes completely he's in verse he's in bethel in verse 16 and he sees some 300 year old sepulchers now, do you think as he approached those brothers and sisters he didn't know that he was nearing bethel oh i think he did because jeroboam this is jeroboam's old stomping grounds and he comes to this place and he says, just a minute, I have a job to do here. Remember we said in our first class that Josiah made it his mission to undo all of Jeroboam's evils. And here we come full circle. He takes the bones out of the graves and he burns them on the smashed down altar that had just been destroyed in verse 15. But as he's doing this, he comes to one grave in particular. It's the grave of the man of God from 1 Kings 13 who had prophesied his birth. Well, I think that man had so much significance to Josiah, even though he never met him. That man who had foretold his birth and what he would do to the altar and the bones of the priests, that prophecy had special meaning for him. He had never forgotten it. But it wasn't just that prophecy that he remembered. Because he remembered what happened to that man of God and that somewhat obscure story that we don't learn as much about in Sunday school. That after he had made that prophecy and left Jeroboam to travel home, he was met by an old prophet along the way. And Josiah knew that old prophet's bones were there too. And he left them both alone. Oh yes, this story, this story stuck in Josiah's mind. And it was a sobering reminder for him as he looked upon their graves and instructed his men to leave their bones alone. Why was that story so important to him, brothers and sisters, beyond just the fact that it prophesied of his birth? We'll have to wait until our study on Thursday, God willing, to look at that a little bit more. So let's just finish this morning then with our summary lessons, our takeaway points. 
couple of things that we've looked at. The, the need to kindle a fire in our hearts for God and not be afraid to share that zeal and that passion to, to because it will be contagious with other brothers and sisters, with other kids and grandkids. The second is to, to remind ourselves of the fact that it's more important to inspire obedience than to force compliance. And those of you that have kids much older than myself or grandkids even, you know this much better than I do. To be present with our God and with each other in our families and in the ecclesia. Finally, to purge idolatry from our lives and our homes and be prepared to do it on an iterative basis that sometimes it needs to happen um, over and over again, periodically, every new year, perhaps. The unfortunate part about Josiah's purge, of course, is that he pulverized and beat to dust all the idols he could see, but he couldn't touch the ones in the hearts of the people. We could focus on how and why Josiah's efforts were unsuccessful to convert the nation because, well, after all, he went about it the wrong way. He caused the people to stand to a covenant. We, we could try to demonstrate that point, brothers and sisters, but I don't think that's how God bears the record out. Because remember, responding to God's call has always been and always will be a matter of personal choice. God never holds Josiah accountable or responsible for the fact that the people turned to him faintedly. There's never a whisper of a negative or condemning tone for this great effort that Josiah is going to. Their lack of choosing God didn't reflect poorly on Josiah's efforts. And let's not forget that the people did follow through with their covenant all the days of Josiah. He did inspire some in that generation. There was a faithful remnant. And to make sure that happened, brothers and sisters, tomorrow we'll look at how he does so much more than just purging. He's not finished in the work. He's got more in mind to keep driving forward, to keep pushing the people forward with positive spiritual initiatives in the ecclesia to make sure that, in the words of Brother L.G. Sargent, they will cast out the evil by implanting the good.